Chapter 5 of Niqua or the Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Vandenberg. Niqua or the Problem of the Ages by Jack Adams. The Break. I was startled from my slumbers by the alarm and spring to my feet. The strong breeze that had been blowing from the southwest had increased to a gale, and the hissing of the steam revealed the fact that sufficient warning had been given to enable the engineer to be ready to start the machinery as soon as the parting of the ice gave us an opening through which we could move. The time for action had come, and I heard Battelle give the order to cut the cables. As I hastened to the deck, the two great ice mountains between which we lay were lifted by the waves, and a moment later parted and a shower of ice fragments from the sundered roof fell upon the upper deck with an awful crash. But thanks to the wise precautions that had been taken, no one was hurt, and the injuries to the vessel were but slight. The ice field had parted along the line that had been predicted by Captain Battelle, and the Ice King was at once subjected to the full force of the winds and waves which urged us forward with an irresistible force. But under the influence of the same power, the ice continued to part before us, and all we had to do was to keep in the channel that was forming. While the waves behind us were driving the ship to seeming destruction, they were at the same time rendering the ice field asunder in the direction we were moving, creating a narrow but constantly widening channel between the walls of ice on either side. Captain Patel, as usual in cases of emergency, was in command. Captain Gano was at the wheel, while I took my place at his side to take notes and render assistance as occasion might require. Captain Patel was right when he said we might be compelled to run for our lives. The gale continued to increase in its fury, and as we followed the channel that was forming before us, the wind was closing up the channel behind, by huge masses of ice in wild commotion. A halt would have invited destruction, and if we missed the channel that was being opened before us, we might be dashed to pieces against the ice. While the general direction of the channel being formed was toward the north, the ice did not break along a straight line, but was often zigzag, and it took the closest kind of attention to keep the ship from dashing against one side or the other and being disabled. The ice pack that was always forming behind us, urged forward by the wind and probably a strong ocean current, made retreat impossible, even if we had so desired. There was but one thing that could be done, which was to move forward regardless of the continual danger of a collision that might prove fatal. This strain was kept up for several hours, when to our great delight we could discern what seemed to be a small island toward the northeast and an open sea beyond. A minute later, what appeared to be a mighty watchtower, at least 200 feet in height, loomed up before our astonished vision just a little off from our starboard quarter. It stood at the edge of the water, and the waves were dashing against its base. This island was evidently the obstruction against which the ice field had been lodged. The tower was built of dressed stones accurately piled upon each other, and at one time had apparently been surrounded by a spiral staircase which led to an observatory on top. This conclusion was a logical deduction from the existence of a spiral ledge from the base to the summit, plainly indicating it had been used as a support for an external structure. We were now running under a full head of steam through a channel that had been formed between the ice and the island which led to an open sea beyond. This channel brought us closer to the strange tower, and as we came even with it, Captain Battelle gave the word, Starboard your helm, hard up! Aye, aye, sir, came the response, and the wheel fairly spun in Captain Gano's hands. 
the ice king lurched trembled and in the next instant shot around the tower and into comparatively still water under the cover of the island which we now discovered extended from west to east about two miles in the form of a crescent constituting a safe harbor from all storms except from the north we determined to cast anchor until the wind had subsided and give our small crew a much-needed rest this gave me an opportunity to make sketches of the tower and island at my leisure the rest was most welcome to officers and men after the unusual fatigues of the last few days culminating in the excitement and extraordinary efforts of the last few hours while we slept the winds ceased to howl the skies became clear and i sketched the tower and the island while they were bathed in the glorious hues of an arctic sunset i applied the camera to every prominent object in sight the island had the appearance of a segment of the top of a circular mountain which might have been in geological ages the crater of a vast volcano since which time the land had been depressed or the water level elevated perhaps several hundred feet the shoreline was a granite precipice rising to the height of about one hundred feet over this was a lofty covering of ice cut into the most fantastic shapes by streams of water which come with summer and depart with winter in places where the surface had been laid bare i could discover traces of man's handiwork which for the present i had no opportunity to investigate owing to the precipitous nature of the shoreline but the object of the greatest interest was the tower as i made my sketch the last rays of the sun illuminated the strange guardian of these unexplored waters with a lustre which impressed the beholder with a feeling of awe we examined it closely with our glasses and speculated as to its origin it had evidently been erected to serve some important purpose by a people who were skilled in architecture from its location it might have served the purpose of a lighthouse in some far-off time before these regions were covered with their present mantle of ice as this mighty column loomed up above its icy background its presence was thought-provoking as well as awe-inspiring it seemed like some sentinel placed here to guard the gateway to this unknown northern sea but when was it built and for what purpose were questions that were continually forced upon our minds as to the time it must have been before the great ice age when tropical plants as well as animals flourished in the far north and a tropical or semi-tropical climate extended from the equator to the poles but this did not indicate the purpose for which it was erected was it an observatory for astronomical purposes or a lighthouse for the guidance of the prehistoric navigators of these waters now locked in the embrace of almost impassable ice barriers who could tell all we could do for the present was to record our observations the tower was there two hundred feet in height and its latitude was eighty five degrees north and longitude one hundred and eighty degrees west this was all that we could learn for the present as had been the experience of all other navigators in the high northern latitudes the dipping of the needle rendered the compass useless and we had to depend on the sun moon and stars for our guidance but the skies were clear and the sea open so that we apprehended no further trouble notwithstanding this was the beginning of winter accounts of the expedition were sealed in bottles and sent up in balloons as was our custom and as there was no ice in sight we determined to sail due north from the tower after holding our course for a few days we found that the needle had again assumed the horizontal position and that we were sailing due south we knew we had started north and had not consciously changed our course here was a mystery we could not fathom but this was not all the horizon seemed to be rising up and obscuring stars that ought to have been in full view the pole star which had been near the zenith was sinking toward the horizon behind us the whole face of the celestial vault was changing as the northern lights which were dropping to the rear grew less brilliant the horizon 
beamed with a halo of light which continued to grow brighter without having changed our course we were now sailing away from the constellations by which we had so long been guided in our progress toward the pole what could it mean these strange phenomena upset all of our calculations everything seemed weird and unnatural the engines were stopped and we lay to in order to make observations and study the situation accounts of these strange phenomena were securely sealed in bottles and committed to the care of the winds captains gonneau and battelle held a council in the library and made careful study of the best authorities but could find no solution to the problem as to why we should be going south it was determined to change our course to the northeast continuing in this direction we found the cold increasing while the northern lights grew brighter and the stars that had been obscured again made their appearance above the horizon at the end of this run the ice pack now frozen solid made its appearance we changed our course toward the east keeping the ice on our starboard quarter until we were again at the great tower from which we had started we had discovered no opening in the ice barriers and no solution to the problem we had started out to investigate we found ourselves in an open sea but encompassed by an impassable barrier of ice we again determined to sail directly north and if possible cross this wide expanse of ocean around which we had been sailing in a few days we again found ourselves running south and leaving the pole star behind us star after star began to disappear behind the horizon again the light in the south appeared and began to grow brighter again captains gonneau and battelle held a conference after carefully comparing notes and going over all the facts revealed by our observations captain gonneau asked me to hand him a magazine which he selected from the catalogue i complied and he looked through it for a minute and handed it to me saying there is a solution of the problem i found the article which he had marked to be a review of the theory of concentric spheres by captain john cleves sims according to this theory says the reviewer the earth is a hollow globe and open at the poles the diameter of the northern opening is about two thousand miles or four thousand miles from outside to outside the south opening is somewhat larger the planes of these openings are parallel with each other and form an angle of twelve degrees with the equator the shell of the earth is about one thousand miles thick and the edges of the shell at the openings are called verges and measure from the regular convexity without to the regular concavity within about one thousand five hundred miles i turned and read the passes again which had been marked for my careful perusal i had never heard of this theory of concentric spheres could this earth be a hollow shell with an outer and inner surface at first thought i felt like rejecting the idea as utterly absurd but in view of the strange and inexplicable phenomena which we had encountered and my confidence in the judgment of captain gonneau i only requested him to tell me just what he thought about this hollow globe theory i believe he said that this theory offers the only logical solution of the phenomena which have upset all of our calculations we found the open polar sea just as we expected but when we tried to sail across it we found ourselves sailing away from it we also found that constellations which ought according to the popular astronomy to have been seen above the horizon were entirely obscured you'll remember that you remarked the cramped appearance as you expressed it of the celestial vault when we were imprisoned in the ice this theory of concentric spheres 
offers a ready and complete explanation of all these phenomena by which we have been so much puzzled. It now begins to look as if this theory had been rejected by scientists with the same unreasoning haste that every other new idea has encountered. Many things that explorers have met with in the polar regions seem inexplicable, unless we admit the truth of this theory. The last remark aroused the interest of Captain Battelle, who was ordinarily more inclined to listen than to join in the conversation. Taking up the subject where Captain Gannot seemed disposed to drop it, he continued, In my experience as a whaler and explorer, I have often found tropical vegetation and the evidence of man's handiwork on the northern shores of Iceland, Spitsbergen, and the borders of Siberia, trees, vines, and flowers. The position where these were found on the northern shores precludes the idea of their having been brought by ocean currents from our own temperate and tropical countries. Besides this, we find that after we pass 80 degrees north latitude, the cold never increases. We further observe flocks of birds coming from and returning to the north. When we kill them for food, we often find their crops filled with grain and seeds, which must be the product of a mild climate. All these things have come under my personal observation, and this theory of concentric spheres offers the most complete explanation that I have met with. Then do you believe this theory? I asked, somewhat surprised at the unusual interest taken by Captain Battelle. Why not? he responded. I have always been among the few who treated every new thought with fairness and consideration, no matter what might be my own preconceived opinions. While not accepting every new-fangled theory that comes along, I do not condemn but investigate, with a view to ascertain the exact truth. I will not knowingly twist and misrepresent facts and logical deductions therefrom for the purpose of proving a pre-adopted creed. Hence I have given this theory an impartial hearing, and justice compels me to admit that the arguments in its favor are well worthy of careful consideration. Scientists have all agreed that the earth is not a cold, solid body, and to account for its lack of density, they assume that the center is expanded and diffused by heat. They further assume that it was originally a nebulous body entirely destitute of a solid surface. If this is true, then the centrifugal force generated by its rapid revolution on its axis would certainly throw its constituent elements outward toward the surface, thus tending to produce a hollow shell, the very thing claimed in this theory of concentric spheres. The operation of this mechanical law, which governs revolving matter, can be readily illustrated by placing a quantity of oil and alcohol of the same density. The oil at once assumes the globular form by virtue of the law of molecular attraction. Then insert a disc through the center of the globule and begin to turn it around. The oil at once begins to rotate on its axis and becomes depressed at the poles and bulged at the equator. Thus, the form which the earth is conceived to be. Increasing the rapidity of the revolution up to a certain point and the oil separates from the disc and becomes a revolving ring. Reasoning from these well-known mechanical laws, we are forced to the conclusion that if the earth was ever a soft revolving body, it must be hollow at the center, and it is not at all unlikely that there may be openings at the poles into this hollow space. So, we see that there is some logical foundations for this hollow globe theory. It is true, I replied, that the motion of a soft revolving body, such as the Earth is supposed to have been, may be so accelerated that the mass will separate from the line of its axis. But in such a case, it would become a revolving ring and not a hollow shell, as required by this theory of concentric spheres. 
have you any theory as to how the revolving ring could under the operation of known mechanical laws be converted into a hollow shell with convex and concave surfaces yes responded Battelle. i can easily formulate such a theory i can assume that the earth was at one time a revolving ring of meteors or minute planetary bodies which by the mutual attraction of its parts became solid this ring besides the motion on its own axis was revolving around the sun or common centre of the solar nebula through space filled with meteors and by its attraction it gathered other rings of meteors exterior to itself thus forming a series of concentric rings revolving around the first or present ring the materials composing these external rings could not reach the parent ring as its equator because of the centrifugal force generated by its revolution around the axis, but under the operation of well-known mechanical laws, they might be drawn toward the pole where the attraction was the greatest and the centrifugal force the least. Under the influences of these contending forces, these external rings thus acted upon would one by one spread out and form first a canopy over the central ring, and then it would part at the equator and be drawn into the poles where it would ultimately find a resting place upon its polar edges such a process kept up long enough would convert the original revolving ring or infant earth into a hollow shell of course all this is mere speculation but the same thing may be said of the nebular hypothesis the supposed igneous condition of the earth's centre and in fact of nearly all the teachings of science when it attempts to go beyond the domain of undisputed facts i am much interested in your reasoning i said this is a new thought to me and i would like to follow it a little further how does this hollow globe theory account for volcanoes and other evidences of internal heat that have led scientists to the conclusion that the center of the earth is an igneous mass to my mind said battelle these evidence of intense internal heat do not conflict with the hollow globe theory. Assuming that the shell is 1,000 miles thick at the center between the outer and inner crust, there would be a pressure of 500 miles of solid matter more than sufficient to generate a heat that would melt every known rock, and this of itself will account for nearly every evidence of internal heat. Scientists have taught us that heat is a form of motion or rather that it is the result of motion when arrested now pressure is only arrested motion or in other words heat hence it has been estimated that the weight of a column of steel blocks sixty-five thousand feet in height would generate sufficient heat to melt the lower tier of blocks these well-known laws to my mind offer a more plausible explanation of the existence of intense heat at great depths then the assumption that this heat is the residue that was left over from the heat of an original planetary nebula. Well-known laws of physics force us to the conclusion that this earth can never become a cold body, and that the igneous condition of great depths will continue as long as the centripetal and centrifugal forces continue to press the outer and inner forces toward each other. Or, in other words, as long as the surface continues to press down upon the materials below, as they do now, there will be intense heat at great depths. Your theory, I replied, if true, will force scientists to abandon the wonderful history of creation which they have evolved from long and persistent research. Nothing but their opinions will need to be revised, said Battelle. Every fact they have discovered will continue to be a fact. 
we are here on this expedition to discover facts of scientific importance and it now looks as if we are making a most wonderful discovery that will force scientists to abandon some of their long-cherished opinions and revise others if we find that this earth is actually a hollow shell it will be a fact that must be in the very nature of things harmonized with every other fact that has been or will be discovered facts are facts and while they may not be understood they cannot be set aside it was to discover the facts that might benefit the entire human race by increasing their knowledge that i sacrificed a whaling business that was paying a handsome profit to join captain Gannot on this expedition in which i might lose the accumulations of years and possibly life itself i certainly did not join this expedition in order to either confirm or disprove any of the theories which scientists have given to the world then it seems i responded that you joined the expedition with a view to make discoveries by which mankind would be benefited by adding to the sum total of human knowledge rather than from any hope of personal advantage possibly he said but i cannot draw the line that your remark would seem to suggest i cannot see how i could help mankind without helping myself at least so far as it would give me satisfaction and that, after all, is the one great object that makes life worth the living. As to just what I expected to discover, I have only to say that I am not surprised at present appearances. There now seem to be as many indicators of the presence of a habitable country on an inner surface of the globe as there were of a western hemisphere before the discovery of America. Columbus gave to mankind a new world, and we should be the means of discovering an inner world and of opening a line of communication between that and the outer world. It would not be so much a matter of astonishment as it would be of actual advantage. Then, turning to Captain Gannot, he asked, What do you think of our prospect of success? The present indicators, replied the captain, are certainly most encouraging. From the observations which we have already made, I believe that we have passed over the verge into the gateway of an inner world. You remember, he continued, turning to me, that when we made our escape from the ice, we sailed directly north, and soon made the discovery that something interposed between us and certain stars that ought to have been visible just above the horizon. Yes, I replied, I remember, but what do you infer from that? I infer, he said, that this is the opposite side of the verge that interposed between us and the stars which we calculated ought to have been visible. And now I propose to sail south until we find land, or failing in that, run out at the south opening if we find one. We have circumnavigated the North Pole, and yet when we tried to sail across the open polar sea, we found ourselves sailing away from it, assisted by a powerful ocean current. Now the water which comes from this impassable polar sea is going somewhere, and it is our business to follow it up and find out all we can about its destination. As he spoke, a large flock of birds passed over our heads. There, said the captain, go our oracles that will lead us to land. And as they are going in our direction, I propose to follow them. And going to the wheel, he placed the ship directly in their track. How is it, I asked, that you now take the birds for our guide, something you have never done before? Because, said the captain, we want to find land, and these birds are evidently on their way to find feeding grounds. I wonder that it did not occur to me sooner to follow them. The light we had observed in the southern horizon grew brighter, and soon we saw the sun emerge as if from behind a cloud and disappear again near the same point when we saw the full moon and a few stars shining through the northern verge. 
It was indeed a strange sight to visitors from the outer world. It never became actually dark, as light from the sun, either direct or reflected, reached us at all times. We had therefore reached a country of which it might be truly said there is no night there. Some two days after the first appearance of the sun shining through the opening at the southern pole, we sighted a small island with a high, rocky shoreline, and a deep inlet which formed a natural harbour, well protected from storms if any ever came to these placid waters. We steamed into the inlet, cast anchor, and went ashore. This was the first time in over eighteen months that we had the opportunity to set our feet upon land. As there seemed to be an abundance of game birds, Captain Gonneau gave orders that all who desired might take their guns and enjoy a day's shooting. Notwithstanding the general desolation of the island, it was a most welcome diversion for our small and overworked crew. The first thing that attracted our notice was the stump of a tree that had been cut down with an axe. Though the stump was much decayed, the marks of the axe were plainly visible. On examination, we found plenty of evidence that the island had been inhabited at no very distant day, as everything in the shape of timber had been cut down. This we regretted, as we would gladly have availed ourselves of an opportunity to take on a supply of wood, our coal being well-nigh exhausted. On one side of the narrow inlet in which the ship was anchored was a wall of stone which was covered with fingers of men, animals, and hieroglyphics. Captain Gonneau said that he had seen similar sculptured stones in New Mexico, and from this he inferred that the time had been when the same people had visited both localities, and that time had been before the great ice caps had enveloped the poles. On the other side of the inlet was found a rude hut, constructed of rough stones, and from the inscriptions on the walls we learned that it had been occupied by an English-speaking people, whose vessel had been wrecked on this lonely island. The powerful current, which had been the chief factor in liberating us from the ice and sweeping us out into the open polar sea, touched at this lonely island, and it was not unlikely that it was this current which had stranded some disabled whaler and its crew, the vestiges of which were now attracting our attention. This would also account for the destruction of the few trees which had grown upon this stony waste. So near the icy verge, fire was a necessity. The scant growth of timber had been needed for fuel by these shipwrecked mariners. But what had become of the crew? They had evidently burned up all the fuel, but they had not been frozen, as their skeletons would have revealed their fate. The supply of ducks, geese, and fish seemed inexhaustible, and hence they had not starved. We searched diligently, but could find no indications of death in their ranks, except one lone grave, on the most elevated point in the island, marked by a rough stone on which was inscribed the one word, Father. With my camera I took views of the most prominent objects. We spent two days in this island, to the great relief of all. The sailors enjoyed the hunt, and a goodly supply of ducks, geese, etc. rewarded their efforts. End of chapter 5 Recording by Amy Vandenberg